In today's episode, the SHE team explores the social, mental, and political fallout facing pastors and church ministry today as they've led congregations through a pandemic, social and political unrest, and disunity in their churches. We start with the 2022 Barner Research data that reveals the sobering reality of how many Protestant pastors in the U.S. have considered leaving church ministry in the past year. The team talks through options and strategies that elders and board members might consider employing to tend to the health and well-being of their pastors during what is a trying period for church life and ministry. I'm Jane Wilcox, and you are listening to Shecclesiology, Girls Talk in Church. Tell your girls a story, I won't tell you a lie. Anything you want, you can do it just fine. Come on. Besides myself, Shecclesiology is M. Who, Jennifer Johnson, Chris Ann Swartley. So there are several groups of public servants uh, that are my heroes of the pandemic. I've mentioned some of them before, uh, like teachers and emergency room doctors and nurses and first responders. And I've since added grocery store workers, waitresses, flight attendants, Lord have mercy on them. And then in my own special category are the clergy, the pastors that showed up to preside over what must have felt like never-ending funerals, of course, with a COVID virus lurking in the air, they showed up anyway. Pastors who made very difficult and probably often no-win decisions that directly affected their lives as well as that of others in their congregants. And inevitably, I'm sure their decisions at times angered those on church boards and probably even those who are writing their paychecks, which made making that decision even more treacherous. Of course, I'm no longer living in that context, but I know there are pastors on this podcast and there are others, other pastors who have dealt with this. And it does break my heart for them in the wake of the post-COVID church that they are called to lead. So in some of the reading that we did, some of it was the Barna Research Group. They did a poll over the last year and discovered that more than two out of five pastors, like 42%, have seriously considered leaving ministry in this last year. And then for pastors under 45, nearly half of them have considered leaving the ministry in the last year which is amazing. Uh, And then they got into the reasons why. The top three. First one, the immense stress of the job. Two, they feel lonely and isolated. And then the third, the current political division in our congregations. And then there's four, five, and six, which I'll quickly read. They're interesting as well. Coming in fourth, I am unhappy with how my pastoral role has affected my family. Five, I'm not optimistic about the future of my church. And then six, my vision of the church conflicts with the church's direction. So 42% seriously considered wanting to leave in this past year. The other 58% who did not seriously consider leaving the church named these same top three factors as having negatively affected their ability to lead the church. The same three factors. 
these are legit reasons that are heavily weighing enough on pastors that they are looking for an exit door. For those that were asked, why do you stay? They said, because they really feel their ministry is valuable. They feel called to it and they feel a sense of duty to fulfill it. To me, that sounds like a stuck pattern. You have factors that are contributing to really good reasons to want to take the exit door. At the same time, there is this very deep call and draw and value and purpose in the work that they do. Um, I think there is even more particularly a feeling of stuckedness for those whose livelihoods depend on their pastoral location. So that even if they decided they, they can't do it anymore, that they have to stay. One of the, the authors that we read who wrote the, the article in Sojourners that really kicked off this idea of the great pastoral resignation, um, she boiled it down to the question that pastors are asking themselves. Is this a sustainable life for me? Which was fascinating, I think, in terms of sustainability emotionally, probably financially, physically, so many reasons why. Two of you here, Christian and Kim, are in actively in pastoral roles in your churches. Uh, Jen, you're quite familiar with the pastoral context as a former pastor's wife. And before going into teaching, I, I was in pastoral ministry as well. So I think we have some perspectives to contribute to this conversation. And I want to unpack that tonight and see where we land. Okay. So first question is, does this ring true? Can we relate to these pastors who are feeling the immense stress and the loneliness of the ministry? And then on top of that, um, the burden that they are carrying as they try to navigate the political divisions and factions in our churches. So what do you think? I was surprised the number wasn't higher given all that we've lived through in the last five, six years, you know, we, it's easy to live in an echo chamber. And a lot of the people that I follow on Twitter are in these spaces. If they're not necessarily in vocational ministry, although some of them are, but they're affiliated, they're um, connected in some way to ministry circles. And, and I've just seen wave after wave mm. of people saying, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, this is kind of like in one of the things we read, like there's just been so many emails or tweets or links to final sermons or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and we've all seen the, the climate and the, the way that people are treating each other and the way that people are polarizing. And so I was glad to see the numbers as, I mean, I was glad to see the numbers as low as they are. I'm, I'm not glad that they're that this is something we have to talk about and that this is a reality, but I was right. actually surprised it wasn't 70% or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And I do wonder, it's one of those questions when you're a pastor in ministry and someone asks you that question, I think it takes a lot of courage to say, yeah, I've had that thought that I want to leave because that's, that's defying a lot of things, your call, your commitment mm -hmm. and devotion to your congregants. So I don't want to make the assumption that it is higher, but just to acknowledge that's a difficult question to answer. And for those who depend on the income, I mean, I, I have always felt very fortunate that 
I could follow my vocation in some pretty wild ways because we didn't depend solely on my income. Um, but you know, for some families, I, I think some pastors probably could talk more freely about yeah. the desire to leave if they didn't depend on that income. And, and, you know, when you train to be a pastor, that's such a narrow training. I mean, I, my bachelor's degree is congregational and youth ministry. So that has qualified me to do ministry in a church Yep. or maybe a camp. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the master's degree, master of divinity. I mean, you can go on and teach, but yeah, I mean, you're, it's a pretty narrow training focus as well. So it's not like a career shift feels very easy. Yeah. I think it's interesting me looking at this data since out of the four of us, I am the youngest in my foray this close into pastoral ministry, having only been here for still under two years now. And I think what I appreciate at least in the data is that um, it's, it's hard. I think that's just the takeaway that like doing pastoral ministry is difficult. And I think the stats and the statements, uh, I think speak to a, a like almost an invisible weight that I think pastors or people in full-time ministry can carry. Mm. I know that for me, I think being in ministry is one of the weirdest things ever because when regular like non-church people ask you what you do, I think about it. I'm like, I know I'm working enough to warrant like why I'm getting paid. But when you have to like almost resume style, explain that to people, it's really challenging. It's not like I built this database. There's no concrete thing that you're doing. Like, I'm trying to like love people like Jesus. Like that doesn't take up a lot of space on your resume professionally, but yet we can see from the data that there's a lot that goes into it. Like a lot of the relational pull and not only the relational stress, but mm -hmm. it's also like an identity. And we have all heard the, the advice time and time again, that you're not what you do and that your role isn't who you are. But please, I would love to have a dollar for every single pastor who's ever had that thought. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to separate those things. And so stress and loneliness and mm -hmm. stress and loneliness, not surprised. The political division, I think, is mm -hmm. very interesting. And I think even in some of the places, um, I don't know if it was this article or, or reference it later, but some of it was talking about how you need to defend yourself at church against bullies and narcissists. And I'm yes. like, oh, what a great way just to call it out. But I'm like, oh yeah, we have bullies and narcissists who sit in our pews. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to manage. And that's not exactly what you signed up for when you went into pastoral ministry. I, I think the last number of years have just felt like a no win. I mean, I, th I think yeah. it was the Melissa Floor Bixler article that uh, that said something about any decision you make mask, no mask in person, virtual, um, and, and heaven forbid you bring up politics, you're going to displease and offend about 50% of your people. And that living in that kind of constant, no win decision-making is so exhausting. So exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I think on top of that, just navigating it, um, politics is one thing, but also in the past few years, having to navigate areas of expertise that 
God, God bless every single person who does full-time ministry, but has no business making choices about. I think in the podcast where the author is interviewed, the podcast hosts make a joke about how I would love to award every clergy person a master's of public health after what they've <laughs> had to gone through in the past two years. Exactly. And I can attest to that. One of the first things I had to do first year in pastoral ministry was figure out a COVID protocol for coming to in-person service. And I have no business <laughs> figuring that out. But did I do it? Yes, I did. And was it stressful? Yes, it was. Well, I thought about that too. I actually wrote, physically wrote a list of all of the, and this isn't going to be exhaustive. I'm sure you guys could chime in with more, but the roles that we're asking pastors to Mm -hmm. fill, not just during COVID, but in general. So we're asking them to be our spiritual directors, but we're only going to give you one hour a week. And you also have to entertain us while you're doing it. Yep. The pastor has to be a counselor in many senses. And in many times has to be a parent figure, uh, a visionary leader, a CEO or a president of a corporation a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, a leader of disciples, public relations for Jesus, a conflict mediator, a social justice advocate. And in the case of my situation, when we were pastoring, my husband was pastoring a small church. He was also the youth group leader. He was also Mm -hmm. the person who pulled together Song Show Plus so that we had slides on Sundays. He was uh, occasionally the person who ran the vacuum. He mowed the lawn. I mean, the number of things that we're asking these people to do is, is it's an impossible thing. And the, and the tweet thread that we read, which I thought was brilliant. Um, he talks about, we assume this omni-competency and we don't assume yeah. that in any other realm, except maybe like, I don't know, president of the United States. I mean, like we have such high expectations mm-hmm. for these men and women and never mind the fact of their training, which is one factor, you know, the type of training that we're trying to prepare these people for ministry, but even beyond that, their own giftedness, what they are bringing to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most gifted, talented person in the world can't do all of those things well. And yet when they drop the ball, as they inevitably will on some of them, um, we're unhappy with them. And we, we look for reasons to be unhappy with the church. So, you know, and I think that stress has always been there, but I think COVID peeled away. There were Mm. things that were true, but we didn't see them until COVID. And I think we've always had like this, this high, high expectation of what our our spiritual leaders are going to be bringing. And, but COVID just revealed that like Mm -hmm. the insanity of the expectations that we're bringing to those people. It just reminds me of early Highland Park, uh, where it was the one woman Sunday morning worship show. And I had gone to meet with a group of seminary students as as part of their program, and they were asking me questions. And they said to me, uh, they asked me, well, well, what's your giftedness? And it hit me, like, what is my giftedness? Because I was doing so many different things that I sort of lost those tasks and those passions that really drew me into ministry to begin with, which it was no surprise at that point that I was feeling quite drained because I was so busy doing other inane things. Sometimes they need to get done. Sometimes it just didn't need to get done, but I was meeting expectations. Yes. This might spur some interesting discussion, but um, before we paint pastors as victims of all of those expectations and responsibilities pulling at us, I think, I think it's important for pastors to own 
Mm-hmm. They, they receive that and they respond to it and they fulfill all of those expectations. I, I've grown in my respect for those pastors who say, I will meet with you once, but I am not your counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, I will mentor you in this way, but I am not your father or mother figure. Um, pastors who pull, even in a very small church, our, our church is pretty small and we have a group of six congregational leaders and Randy and myself and the other pastors rely on those congregational leaders to help us make financial decisions, vision decisions. Like we, we are not the, the bearers of all of that burden. And I, I think it's important for pastor, you know, so a congregation is going to put expectations on you, but it's up to you as the pastor, whether or not you accept that we're, we're not victims. Um, we can put up Good. boundaries and say, nope, I have a Sabbath day and I don't answer my phone. If there's an emergency, leave me a message. I'll check my messages. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really good. Um, and I think like so many things in life, it's, it's a both and it's a balance. There's, yeah. there are unrealistic expectations and, and I, and to Kim's point, I think a lack of understanding of what the pastoral function involves and and how mm. draining it can be and how expansive it is. But at the same time, um, we can have a, a savior complex where we think that we have mm-hmm. to be everything to all people or, or that we mm. don't have the boundaries to be able to say who we are and, and who we're not and what we can do and what we can't. And I'd be interested because we all, I think have come from, or are currently serving in situations which are small to medium sized. I'd be interested to hear maybe from some of our listeners of how that functions in a, in a mega situation. I'm very mm. familiar with mega churches from my work and from, you know, my past lives of, of working in those <laughs> circles. And it's just a whole different dynamic, but you have yeah. some of the same things. So you might have three degrees of separation between you and some of these disgruntled church members, but the pressures are also bigger because mm-hmm. the stakes aren't higher in the sense that those people matter more or that Jesus is less effective in that, in that context. But it feels like the stakes are higher because there's more zeros in the, in the budget. And there's more, Mm. there's more public relations around what's happening in your congregation. So that's just another thing too. And again, it it doesn't mean that they get to be victims of that. Um, because in many cases they've, they've built those empires, um, Mm -hmm. but it's a real dynamic and there's some really faithful Jesus following leaders in some of those congregations who are dealing with an entirely different set of, of issues. Right. And I think it's, I think that's also kind of interesting to explore. I would be interested in knowing from Barna's research, if he, if the research group intentionally tried to get a cross section of different sized churches in different regions, I assume they did. Um, but I would be interested in hearing how this might differ. Yeah. Um, I'm putting on my, my research wonk head here, but like, you know, how does it differ if you're the lead of a church of 150 versus 15,000, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. 1500. Yeah, I, I would only take a, a guess at if you're a church of 15,000, you either are that pastor or you quickly became that pastor that knew how to delegate to pour yourself into other leaders to take over those, those responsibilities. For sure. But I think also the ones that I know that I've been talking to the last few years are like, well, we were pre-COVID, we were 15,000 and our new Mm. normal is 11,000. And we got to figure out which staff we're going to lay off and figure Mm. out, um, you know, we've got people picketing or, you know, like it's just a different, it's just different set of problems. Yes. 
Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Hey friends, I want to jump in while I have your ear and let you know that I've recently launched a Facebook page called Ecclesiology Listening Community. My hope is that it creates a space for dialogue among our listeners and with the women you hear on the podcast. I'd encourage you to post your thoughts on the page when something we've said intrigues, compels, or even angers you. Let us wrestle through it together, sharing ideas, sources, practices, and fresh ideas about the church that includes and supports your voice. See you there. One of the other challenges I've heard, but I think we could probably relate, the challenge that pastors have as not necessarily being sources of authority anymore. So while they do have all these expectations put on them, they're supposed to be the Bible expert, the great preacher, the counselor. Um, there is this diminishing of authoritative roles. And so they feel very challenged when they are up front and they are trying to establish some sort of control over how we're going to behave or how we're going to respond in a pandemic when we gather together, how are we going to be together? There's a constant battle of, well, so-and-so says we don't need to do this, or so-and-so says we don't need to do that. So it really does undermine their ability to lead well. And that has to be just frustrating, if not absolutely exhausting. Particularly to the two pastors here, have you, have you faced that over the last two years? Christian goes to a Mennonite church. They're all like compliant, easygoing. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, we, we definitely had to deal with our share of differing opinions and, and pretty strong feelings. Um, Mm. very polite. I wouldn't say that we had bullying going on. Um, but you did notice a heightened passion when people would express a differing opinion than what Mm. the elder board and the pastors, what direction we decided to go and someone disagreed. Um, I do know I mean, in general, I feel like the Mennonite church struggles with a a good definition of authority because there was an era, uh, probably 50 or 60 years ago where we had bishops that were very authoritative and said, this is how you will live. And Mm. people, these people in authority in the Mennonite church would travel around to houses before communion Sunday. And if you had a TV out, or if you were wearing a wedding band or, I mean, these kind of rules that now looking back feel so arbitrary, but they were like important back then. And you, you had to abide by the rules hmm. in order to participate in communion. Wow. Um, they, so there was that era. And then I feel like the reaction to that was mm. we did away with the bishops. We did away with all of those rules. And now like we, we don't have a clear understanding now of what that kind of spiritual authority looks Mm. like in a healthy way. We kind of swung the other way. Right. Um, and now it can, in some contexts, it can feel like the people tell the pastor what to do (laughs) instead of the pastor directing the congregation. Yeah. So I, I feel like the Mennonite church in general is struggling with that. Um, yeah, I appreciate the way the lead pastor who I work with, I appreciate the way he very, he is clear and yet he is so open-handed. Like he'll Mm. say, this is the decision we've made. And this is why if you disagree, you need to decide, you know, how you want to respond, but I'm just telling you, this is what we've decided. And this Mm -hmm. is why, 
And he's very like non-anxious and just communicate. And he's willing to talk to anyone about yeah. anything, Yeah, but right. like very clear, this is what we've decided. And this is why if you disagree, then you need to decide, come go. Are you okay with it? Do you need to leave? But I mean, that decision, you do what you need to do, but this is where we've landed. Okay. Um, and, and I appreciate that kind of non-anxious clarity. It reminds yeah. me of what Brene Brown talks about in leadership, that clear is kind. Mm. Mm. Be clear. That's the kindest thing you can do for people. Nice. That deserves to be on a wall hanging somewhere. Surely someone must have it. Yeah. But yeah. I think for me, I feel like I am too young in my ministry to fully weigh in on this. One, because I go to uh, a young church and I also am on the younger side in ministry, not just in years, but in age. And so I think when people disagree, um, I think people are more willing to maybe have like one-on-one conversations, but I do feel like I have seen the ways that people like to discuss it amongst themselves in the name of just, oh, but we really care. And I'm like, but what are you getting at? What are you really doing? What are you really after? And I feel like with a lot of conversations about um, like politics and like concerns of that nature, I feel like the people I know are more willing to duke it out online. But when you see them face to face, everything is fine uh, and they're not going to get into it. Mm. Uh, So I think that's a little bit interesting. Or if they have conflicts, a lot of the times we don't know about it until it's too late and that person hasn't shown up for a month of Sundays and then you reach out to them and you're like, oh, I left. And you're like, why? And it's like, this could have been a conversation. We could have worked through this probably. Mm. And we would have hoped to have worked through it together. Not because our job is convince people to stay, but that is like a caring thing to do. And that like, we genuinely do care about issues, even if we are like, we're the issue. And mm. I think that that's a humbling place that anyone in ministry, pastoral or otherwise has to take that you're going to talk to people and you're going to, you are their issue for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and you have to deal with that. Uh, and that's challenging, but yeah, I, I think for me, sometimes it's a little, either be- the conflict comes either behind the scenes or it comes at a point where it's too late. That person has already resolved that in their mind that it's not a conflict anymore. And they'd rather yeah. just take, t- t- they want to take their worship elsewhere. But, yeah. But. Yeah. What is the role of the faith community that is the church in these difficult seasons of church life, particularly in the question of how can they help carry the burdens of the the pastor and his or her responsibilities. So Gavin Ortland tweeted uh, that Jen referenced earlier. He gave us some pretty interesting suggestions, some short-term ways that will help lift some of the the heaviness off the, the pastor's shoulders. Um, and then the long-term suggestions, which then I think is going to lead us into a deeper conversation. And they're obvious, but sometimes these things need to be said out loud. Gavin Ortland tweeted, regarding the great resignation among clergy, what can churches do? So he gave four short-term ideas. Give your pastor a raise. I don't know why I laughed when I said that, but give your <laughs> pastors a raise. Offer a paid sabbatical. That is some like valuable stuff. If you're a pastor, 
y'all need the board needs to figure out how to get this person a, a sabbatical, even if it's like a three month sabbatical. Third, offer paid counseling or coaching, which I think is a solid suggestion. And then four, support support their family. That is, uh, for example, set up regular free babysitting for those with young kids, which is just, that's just a kind thing to do. About the short-term ideas. We read it and we all kind of laughed a little bit. It felt painfully obvious. And it's, and I think Jane, you said, this is obvious, but the problem is that it's not. And that's why it's being tweeted out by Kevin Ortland in response to this great mm-hmm resignation and so but I think what hurts my heart when I read the list is not that churches are unwilling to do these things it's that because if you look at the top four suggestions about a raise a sabbatical counseling or coaching and a family to me it says that churches look at their pastors and forget that they have financial physical mental Mm -hmm. relational needs and that makes me really sad that we forget that our pastors have feelings and our pastors have problems and they need help. And as he goes on in that thread, it's to say that, yeah, our pastors need to know that they are cared for and Mm -hmm. they are loved. And I wonder how often pastors have the joy and the privilege of preaching love God and love others, but like maybe the, the others part we don't translate and lump our pastors into the other's part. We don't love them. We just need them to do and we need them to perform and we need them to lead. Mm-hmm. But all those other needs, like that's a, that's a you problem. You know, that's what I feel like that's what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we know how we like them. We know what they are and we know how we like them. So do it our way. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are short-term suggestions. And then uh, in his words, he suggests that in terms of long-term, what can churches do? Quote, what really comes to mind is a cultural transition in our churches of reducing expectations and increasing awareness. The average layperson doesn't understand what being a pastor is like or how it is currently getting more challenging. And then he outlines four or five suggestions in in terms of a longer strategy. One of the long-term strategies that I thought would be helpful to poke at is the shift towards different cultural expectations and the responsibility of, of churches. Hey friends, we'll pick up where we left off in the second part of this episode scheduled to drop next month. Thanks a bunch for being a part of our listening community. You can show us some love by hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to our podcast. You can learn more about us at our website at girlstalkinchurch.com. And you can also engage the She Team and other listeners by joining our Shaklesiology podcast community Facebook page. See you there.